You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Welcome to the Broadway Gives Back podcast. I'm your host, Jan Svensson. This podcast spotlights Broadway actors, shows, and organizations in their pursuit of social impact and philanthropy. Join us as some of the brightest lights on Broadway share their stories about their favorite charities and how they got involved, and the people and the causes who benefited from these philanthropic efforts. Today on the Broadway Gives Back podcast, I have two crazy talented and very passionate guys as my guests. Robin DeJesus is a film and theater actor best known for his role of Sonny in the Broadway musical In the Heights for which he received a Tony nomination. Then came La Cage Faux, where he played Jacob, the sassy housekeeper, which earned him a second Tony Award nomination. Robin received his third Tony nomination for his role as Emery in Boys in the Band, and he later recreated that role in the 2020 film adaptation on Netflix. He was in the miniseries Welcome to Chippendales and the film Tick, Tick, Boom, directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda, for which he received massive critical acclaim. Robin has a reputation of being one of Hollywood's and Broadway's hardest working actors who always delivers. Ryan Morales is an actor, a singer, a producer, an activist, and the founding and producing artistic director of Latine Musical Theater Lab, an organization that develops and advocates for new Latine written works of musical theater. His mission is to radically change who gets to tell musical stories on stages across the country and around the world. Ryan has a passion for telling stories about men who find strength in their vulnerability, not shame. Stories that elevate the Latine and LGBTQ plus experience beyond the boundaries they typically exist in. Welcome Robin and Ryan to the Broadway Gives Back podcast. Thank you for having us, hello. Thank you, hi. Oh, it's so good to have you guys here. Um, well, I feel like I'm just sending you a hug through our little Zoom platform here, <laughs> but I wanted to make sure that our listeners got to know you guys better. So I thought that maybe before we get into our meaty discussion about Latine Musical Theater Lab, we could do some quick rapid fire, rapido fire Q&A um, just so people could get to know you better. Are you up for it? Word, yeah. Okay. All right, so let me ask you, these are the first thoughts that come to your head. What are, I'm going to start with you, Robin. What are the three words that best describe you? Mm, silly, sensitive, uh, la, 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 easily excited. 
Oh, that's not that's four words, but no, know. no, no. We'll hyphenate it. It's all good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How about you, Ryan? Uh, passionate, driven, nerd. <laughs> okay, great. Um, I think food tells a lot about a person. Um, so I was trying to imagine, like, if it if we knew the world was ending, there was a meteor going to hit the planet. What would your last meal be? And you don't have to oh, think wow. about healthy things or anything like that. Just what what would your dream meal be? When in doubt, fried pork chops. It's a very <laughs> country Puerto Rican thing, but a good fried pork chop would do the job. Okay. I'm not sure I would join you in that, but all right. <laughs> How about you, Ryan? Oh, gosh. It would be like a Wagyu steak. Like, get make it fancy. Make mm. it, like, simple mm. with, like, a nice side sauce. You can put a little dipping in. And, like, some really great, like, mashed potatoes, asparagus with, like, Parmesan on top. Something like that. Mm. Wait, I have to add because you did you did the full meal. I, did, I you just said yeah. meal. about the pork chop. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. absolutely right. So it's the fried pork chop, probably white rice and beans. My mother's beans mixed in with all the stuff when she does the special beans with plantains, potatoes. Um, uh, she throws in chichas, which is like Vienna sausages, uh, ham, whatever smoked <laughs> meat. You know that that's the thing in Puerto Rico is like in the countryside. It's so much of the food there. It comes from what's around, and you know, this, this economics plays a role in it. So those beans, they got to taste right with them smoked meat. Okay, now you're talking. I had <laughs> Donna, Mur I had Donna Murphy on the podcast a few months ago, and I think she must have spent like at least 15 minutes talking about this meal that she would have, it was, <laughs> and it was so it was so descriptive. So okay. thank you. Any desserts? Just asking because we didn't hit the desserts on that. We didn't hit dessert on that. Gosh, I right now arroz con leche. Hmm. I haven't rice. Uh, yeah, yeah, it sounds good. I have an affinity for like Japanese desserts because I uh, was I lived in Japan for six months as performing out there, so I have an affinity for like any sort of Japanese desserts, ice cream, sweets, anything like that. Okay, interesting. Um, so another question I think is fun is what fictional character would you want to have as your BFF? Ooh. That is a great question. A fictional character that I would like to have be my BFF. Um, Chris Tucker in the uh, the Fifth Element. <laughs> wait, wait. You said literary? Did I just make that up? You no, no, literary. no. Fictional character. Fictional, fictional character. character. You're you're right. Chris, Anything. Yeah. Chris that Tucker works. in the Fifth Element just sounds like it would be a lot of silly fun. Okay. Silly fun. That's going with your descriptive yeah. words about yourself. So that's good. I like the theme. Ryan, what about you? Uh, this is a deep cut, uh, but Riku from Final Fantasy X, I feel like she would be a friggin' blast and would just really get me out of my shell and be like, no, let's go do fun things and like, but work, but fun, you know? And <laughs> That's so funny. So I've never asked anybody this question before on the podcast. So one last question. You both actually have a reputation for showing up. Um, and in the spirit of that idea of showing up and delivering, can you give an example, don't be modest, um, of a time that you showed up for someone or something, um, just to help our listeners understand and get to know you better? Sure. I, I, uh, I remember being in Puerto Rico one day, I was with my mother and her then partner and, uh, he did some, he, he was someone I wasn't a fan of. <laughs> But he, I actually, I, I really didn't like him. But he did something one day that really stuck out to me. And I'm always grateful to have witnessed this. I was younger and 
it was an unhoused person who was asking for money for food outside of Burger King. And he just kind of had an attitude. He said, come on, come inside with me. And he bought her a meal. And mm -hmm. so now whenever I'm walking down the street, if I have the time and someone asks me for money, I usually, it's like, you have to make me laugh, smile. Or if I know you genuinely want and need food and we are outside of an establishment, I will walk in with you and buy you a meal. And maybe like eight months ago, I, a woman was on the corner of 47th and 9th and by the pizzeria over there. And, and she asked me, you know, could I get her a slice? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And she was just kind of jarred. I, I think she thought everyone else assumed her ask was performative. And so I, I went inside with her and I said, why don't you get two, why don't you get like more than one slice? So you have a meal for later. She was at first, she was only going to get one. And, and she, I saw her look at the fridge and, and I said, you get a drink. Go ahead. Of course. So she went and got the drink. And then we're waiting on the food and I'm getting my food. And all of a sudden she just got really, really emotional. And she said, I saw her arms kind of do like reach out to me, but then like pull back. And she said, I'm sorry, can I hug you? And I said, mm -hmm. absolutely. And we just held each other for a, a good 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. And she cried and then we parted. And I, and I didn't want to wait. I had my meal and I just thought mm, there's, there's so much weight there. And I was like, I think my job is done and I want to give her privacy. And I left and that's kind of been with me all year. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Ryan? Yeah. So I think of my mom when I, when you asked that question, like I just started thinking about all the times there because you know, my mom, I grew up with like single mom, divorced at three. My dad was around, but like my mom was really the one who was like the caretaker. Um, mm -hmm. And so as an adult, I've then had the ability to like show up for her when she needs to. And she still shows up for me all the time. But I think of one time it was, I think, end of 2021. I ended up going home for about three weeks when she had surgery. Uh, and she was at a point where she really just had to like sit in bed all day. She, she lived in a two floor apartment. So it was, a, she couldn't even really get down. Her bedroom was upstairs. Downstairs was the kitchen and everything. So I really had to like take care of her. And so I remember like, I didn't want her to be bored in bed. So I went and like moved the television into her bedroom. She didn't have a TV in there. So I moved the television to the bedroom and like created like a makeshift, like shelf thing for it to be on so it was right in front of her bed and and then we would just sit and play cards and she never watched the marvel movies so i was like you know what we have lots of time let's just work our way through like marvel history start to finish <laughs> um and that was how we really helped pass the three weeks and i know like as a as someone who who has been an actor for a long time being able to be home for important things has not always been possible it's hard to make plans it's hard to have time for that um and it was really i think special for her because I, I sort of in my 20s i didn't I, I couldn't always be there for her doing hard things or birthdays mm -hmm. or things like that. So it was one of the first times where I was actually able to be like, no, no, mom, I'm here. I'm here for three weeks. I'm taking care of you. We're going to play cards and we're going to do all the things. And and I think she still talks about that as one of the times where she felt like the most taken care of by her son. Ah, as a mom, mm -hmm. I love that. <laughs> Thank you <laughs> on behalf of all moms. Mm -hmm. um, well, you both obviously had given examples of giving back. And um, this podcast is about giving back and social activism and philanthropy. So I just want to talk a little bit generically about just this idea, the notion of giving back and what it means to each of you. And I, I guess I wonder through 
you know, where did this practice of philanthropy or giving back, how did it form for you guys? You're both proud Puerto Rican backgrounds. Um, and I wondered if, if that influenced any of your activism. Um, so there's like several questions in there. So let's discuss. <laughs> I, I just you go. Okay. Um, I don't know. Like it, it goes back to my mom too. You know, she grew up um, really with nothing and, and worked her way up into getting an accounting degree and then CPA license and eventually retired as like partner of her firm. So she's like such a beacon for me of what it is to build something for yourself and your family from from nothing. And I think uh, within that, like you can't help but see and, and want that for other people. Um, and then I was able to then be an artist, like, right. Um, and the fact that my mom's work and sacrifice created a better life for me, I think it, it it's in your bones in a big way that you want to see a world where what you create is for other people. And, you know, being an actor and artist for me was always simultaneously like, yes, I love it. Yes, it's joyous. Yes, it's fun. But also, how can I be the kind of person that goes on stage and inspires other people to to think about their life or to laugh or like have a, have a spark? And I think that's what we love about theater is that theater has a way of like really touching and influencing people's life and trajectory. Like anyone I talk to talks about how they did theater back in high school or college or whatever, and how the experience of actually doing theater, not just seeing it, not, not just experiencing it visually, but experiencing it hands on, how that's actually like created a different a life for them. And so for me, like when I first started acting, it was about being able to share an experience that helped people do that, right? By by seeing me as an actor. And now that I've moved into my life is really focused on running the lab and, and philanthropy in that way. I think I realized over time that that was not even just enough for me. I'm so ambitious to share, to to, I don't know, pay it forward in some ways, to share what I've been able to have um, thanks to the sacrifices of my mom and my parents. And and I just want to see people live a happy, fulfilled, comfortable life. And to me, it's all about how do we create the circumstances so that as many people as possible can live that and can have the experience that that I've had that came from the sacrifice of my mom and my family. What does it look like to think about that beyond our families and beyond just the people directly related to us or directly around us and create the circumstances mm -hmm. so that they can also live a happy and full life and do the creative things they love and do the nerdy things they love and have passion mm -hmm. for the world. I think that's, I don't know, it's also like how that's how we create a better world, right? When we're all focused about the things that we love and the things that we're passionate about and the things that we're nerdy, <laughs> nerdy for, like the things, you know, we built this internet world where we can all love these different things. I think the more people that get to, that that gets to be the great problem of their life is how do I want to spend these glorious days? Like that's how we create a world where we're all so much happier and there's less conflict and there's less sorrow and there's less pain, right? So that's, I think, why I'm so passionate about philanthropy and especially philanthropy as it relates to the art form of musical theater. Now I feel so much more optimistic. I love the energy and the optimism in that. Thank you. Robin, any thoughts? So one of my grandmothers were our big influence in my life. And they both had this thing where they would cook in bulk every single day. And my, one of my grandmothers, it was kind of her side hustle. What she would do is she'd cook in bulk. And when the factory workers were done, then they would swing by her house and pay like three bucks for a plate or whatever it was. As time went on, my other grandmother would just do it for free. 
she'd cook in bulk and everyone in the family knew like grandma cooks. So if you're hungry and you don't have, you know, you can't, you don't have time to make it home, but you're near her swing by her house or she'd walk by my brother's job or some of the unhoused folks in the neighborhood and she'd go, Hey, and she'd point to her mouth. She'd gesticulate, like, come to my house. I'll feed you. Yeah. And, and so that was always present. And I never really took that in. And it wasn't until I was older that I really began to meditate on that. And in my early 20s, sort of discovering what my spirituality was post, um, post-Catholicism, I, I realized that service work must always be included in, mm. in any desire to be content. And, and for a while, being in the Broadway community, it, it kind of felt easy because there was always a charity event happening. But then there mm-hmm. was a while, there was a period afterwards where I realized, oh, but you just like that you get to perform at this charity event. Is it really service work? And, it, and there's a ratio of it that is. But I, I knew I had to really question that and, and do something that truly was not about me and not centered on me. And the other day, I was, I was actually watching an interview. I, I do this all the time. I just go on YouTube and I watch interviews with like Marlon Brando, Catherine Hepburn, Betty Davis. And uh, there was an interview with Marlena Dietrich, and I don't I don't remember what the what the question was, but it was it was something along the lines of, "Do you think about yourself this way?" Yada yada. And she said, "I don't think about myself. I don't have time to think about just me." And and just the way she said it, I knew I I I really I really connected with that. And I think right now we've been so isolated after so much time that we're in a very me 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 place and. Depression is so present post-pandemic and, and with depression, there's like the narcissism aspect of it that I know for me, service work, even though this is still, there's a self-interest in this, it's also about me getting out of me and like realizing there are others and connecting in that way. And also about, it's about healing. I, I, be, I became a performer because I needed healing and the stage allowed me to be of service in this, in this other way where being a mirror to people and showing them who they are and they receive whatever healing they need. But also me being on that stage was a lot what allowed me to, to be seen. All that said, the service work and philanthropy is also about being a person who is so aware of his ancestors and everything that it took to get to this place now that, that, that we're all the accumulation of so many before, it's the awareness that I also intend to be a seed for others. And so it's just that, that awareness of the math of life and keeping it going. And in, in our particular world, if, if, it, if we're talking about philanthropy within the world of performance arts, it's, it's the awareness that we're always a vulnerable art form. And so how do we how do we keep the inheritance going? Okay. I don't know if you guys can see through the computer, but like I literally am crying. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's so true about looking back at like uh, our ancestors and how I think there's some form of philanthropy or activism that is in our DNA, you know, and you see it modeled, you know, like you saw it from your, your grandmother and, and Ryan, you saw it with your mother. But I think there's also some like epigenetic thing too that um, that's in your DNA. Um, and I think that it's also okay to feel a little selfish about it. So many of my guests, and we've talked about this idea that 
when you do something good, you feel good. And that's okay too. You know, it is about this relationship. And, um, and I think that feel good part um, is, is important too. And it's not just narcissistic. I mean, maybe some of it is, but, um, but I think it's a, it's, you know, it's that dialogue or that energy exchange you now that's mm. happening. Mm. Um, anyway, well, that was very, <clears throat> I'm on a whole roots trip right now, so I won't sideline <laughs> you with that, but I'm a, I'm a, a, my family were Holocaust victims and survivors. And mm. so I've been deep diving into that whole thing. So, um, I, when you said that about just the ancestors, where you've come from and that really hit me. So, yeah, mm. I was just watching, I'm a big Henry Louis Gates fan. To, are y'all aware of Henry Louis Gates yeah. finding your roots? It's in just last night. I was yeah. watching the latest episode because it is it's the, just the idea of looking back at our at our ancestors as a part of our culture that I feel like we need to center more. Yeah, I mean, my mother was. But that's where I th believe I've gotten my sort of philanthropic, you know, mm -hmm. desire to to do something, because she modeled it for me her entire life. But she never spoke to me um, really about her um, experience going through the Holocaust, and she just assimilated and you know spoke English and like didn't talk about her past in Austria, and I didn't really know what happened to her, and I didn't really know. I knew that my grandfather was killed, but I never knew how, and. Um, and I found out just recently, like in the last month, I found a box in a storage unit that was hidden away and the box was titled cheerleading stuff. So I had to open it and like I hadn't seen this box in, I don't know, like 30, 40 years or something. And um, it was my old cheerleading scrapbooks and cheerleading pom-poms and uniform. And at the very bottom of it was a little metal box with all these documents that my family had brought from Vienna mm. and it was passports and birth certificates and marriage licenses. And it was even a death certificate showing that where my grandfather was killed in a concentration camp in Poland. So it was so crazy. Um, and I only bring it up because I do think that all of that sort of informs, um, you know, sort of your own personal desire to, to do good in the world and, 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 mm. and give back. Um, mm. And as I said earlier to you guys, you guys are both have a reputation for being people who, um, as our friend Luis Miranda would say, get shit done. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so Ryan, I want to I want to start with you because um, how did you come to start Latina Musical Theater Lab? Like, what was your motivation, and you know, how did you like? What was the trajectory? Because it's such an amazing organization, it's, and it's also very strategically focused um and you're a very strategic thinker so tell us the story of of the lab yeah so uh it started actually post-covid uh a lot happened in covid where um we all had a chance as especially as performers to sort of slow down and think about our place in the world and there was a lot of input from from you know we see white uh american theater and and all of these folks that were asking us to think deeper about it and so i got involved in uh, activism with the Actors' Equity Association. I started doing some small producing things, creating like pockets of community. And what I sort of realized in rear view, it, the reason why I created the lab and why it felt so right on like my heart to do was because I'm always someone who's really lacked community. I grew up an only child. I never really had community in in elementary school, high school, college, even oh, no. as an adult in the city. It's always been something I've been 
grasping and, and reaching for and something I've, I've never had. And so my solution has been, well, why don't I just create it for myself and others? Um, and so I've, I've created a lot of small things throughout the years in an effort to create that community. And so this big desire for more activism within the theater industry and also my, my budding interest in, in things beyond just performing and being on stage um, led me to where I was in a situation where I was, I was acting in a, a contract down in Florida in late 2021, uh, very unsatisfied. And so I spoke to a mentor and I was like, I, I feel like I want to be working on no, more new musicals and I want to be more connected to fellow Latina people in the industry. And maybe I reached out to Latin people and musical theater writers. And, and she was like, why don't you just combine it? Reach out to Latin musical theater writers. And I was like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. I mean, I know so many. I mean, I know five. I know, wait. <laughs> I only know five. I've been in this industry for a decade and I can only name five Latin musical theater writers. What? And so I started reaching out to people I knew, to Facebook groups and just said, hey, who do you know that's Latin and is writing musicals? And nobody really knew a lot of people, but everybody kind of knew one. And so all of a sudden, within a week's time, I went from knowing five to knowing of 60. And I started reaching out to them and I was like, hey, um, why don't I know you? Why isn't your work out there? And they were like, uh, rude, but also... Uh, this is why. This is what we feel like is lacking. This is what we feel like is missing. And these are the resources we need. And this is the, the the kind of schematic of what we need. And I looked at this list of things that the writers were asking for. And I said, I could make that. And and the person I was on the call with at the time was like, okay, dude, sure. Like, good luck. <laughs> See ya. And I was like, no, 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 I can make that. And so I kept having conversations and meetings during the day, during the shows at night. And I, I was saying, hey, I'm thinking of making this thing. Like, what are your thoughts? What's your input? And then after about two weeks of saying, I'm thinking of making this thing, I started to say, I'm making this thing. I want to know what you think. Tell me. And all of this happened in the course of a month. I went from like first, hey, let me meet with writers to a month later having an LLC and a volunteer managing director who was helping me create this thing. Uh, that was November 16th, 2021. And so it really blossomed from the input of the writers. We held meetings. We held focus groups. We sent out surveys. That's, that's been a big part of the blueprint of how the lab has been strategic because it's all based on what the writers have asked for and their feedback and their needs and trying to get really deep in as someone who I'm not a writer myself. I'm not trying to write a musical. So I get to be this like really curious outsider and observer. And it's really just completely absorbed my imagination and my fascination with this art form because I want to understand so deeply and, I, and my team wants to understand so deeply how do we show up for these writers? How do we create the, the map, the environment, the ecosystem for the writers to be able to succeed in a huge way? And it really did start with just talking to people. It really started with being curious enough to ask questions and really listen to the answers. And and you can see all I'm very much, I am, I guess, the person who gets shit done because I was like, cool, this is a thing. Let's like, let's fucking go. Like, and and I think that's created a lot of joy in it for myself and a lot of movement for it. As an, as an organization. Yeah, now I see why Louise loves you. Um, <laughs> yeah, the whole idea of getting it done. But that, you know, not a lot of people would have just thought about it and thought about it. And then, but you mm. did it. You acted, acted being the key word on it. Um, Robin, what's, um, you know, speak a little bit about your involvement with, um, with the lab. Yeah, I believe, Ryan, and let me know if I'm wrong. Did we just like learn about each other through social media? Did we connect? That way or via email? I think so. We were doing our first benefit concert and we said, okay, we need a host. Who's the perfect host? And literally the first answer, I'm not, I'm not bluffing you here. Like the first answer was Robin De Jesus. Like literally that was our first name. <laughs> and so I don't know who connected us, but I think I like emailed you and then uh, I was still acting then. So we had a phone call during tech for my show. Yes. Yes. <laughs> 
I do remember this now. A hundred percent. See, the thing is, I I have always envied the people that have the tools to be like organizers and and that Norma Ray energy. And my <laughs> nervous system can't take it. Like I I have tried to be that person, and for whatever reason, it's that sensitivity that I mentioned in that that first question you asked us. And and sometimes that sense with that sensitivity, I don't. I don't realize that I don't establish proper boundaries emotionally. And so what I have found over the years is the 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 space that I occupy is connective tissue. I have always I have always discussed specifically liberal white supremacy within theater with my friends and the blind spots that we have where it presents and we don't recognize it, we don't identify it as what it is. And so I was, I would always engage with these conversations with my friends and they would suddenly feel like, oh, wow, you're describing what I feel, but I don't have the dictionary for. Hmm. And then in that, I have a, a dear friend of mine I grew up with who does DEI work and she would also educate me and she would give me a safe space where when I would want to discuss something related to, to, uh, to white supremacy, she'd say, hey, do me a favor, just say whatever you want to say. Don't worry about being politically correct. And I will stop you and say, hey, so just so you know, what you just said there is problematic or could be perceived as problematic because of yada, yada, yada. Hmm. And so she helped me refine my dictionary. And what started happening throughout the pandemic, especially post George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey, is that I started getting a lot of phone calls from folks just saying like, hey, can you just help me like just release this and figure out what exactly it is I'm feeling, or I'm feeling a little ignorant about this thing. Because I've always been a believer that Black liberation is everyone's liberation. And I think a lot of it as Latinos is realizing that we do operate out of a pigmentocracy. And, 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 and if we don't realize our own blind spots, then we can't, we can't be good allies to all Black folks, whether they are Latino or not Latino, mm -hmm. or Latine and Latinx. And, and so because those conversations were always circling in my social circles, my phone was just going off all throughout the pandemic. And, um, and so I feel like there's a world where though within those conversations, I was getting asked by folks to, you know, come join this group here or host this event there or whatever. And I, I feel like maybe somehow that's how we got connected as well, that energy. You just talked about dictionary. Can I just ask on behalf of myself and maybe others? Yes. So I've had this conversation with others. So Hispanic, Latin, Latinx, Latine. Um, what's the, what's the, as you said, your friend guided you on sort of the best words to yeah. use. What is the, what's the best words to use? Well, the first thing I have to say immediately with this conversation is because I think there are a lot of people who, as soon as they hear Latine, Latinx, especially within the Latine, Latinx community, whether they identify, mostly people who don't identify with that word, even though they are those words, I should say, even though they are members of those communities, is that they get, they get turned off. People hear Latinx and Latine and they're just like, what is that? What does that mean? And for me, I like to think of it as real-time healing. Like, you know, if we're looking at an iPad and we zoom in on something, suddenly we see more and things become more pixelated. And with Latino and Latina, 
it is kind of fascinating that we would genderize the group. American doesn't have a gender, it's not male or female or non-binary. And, and, and so over time, Latinx was developed to be more inclusive of gender non-conforming folks um, and also to um, just not genderize things. Mm -hmm. And I think that that word became really hard to say in both languages and Latinx kind of blows off the tongue easier. I think there's just, there's a lot of resistance within our own communities. Yeah. And especially like in some of the older people, right? Because that's where I, I've had this conversation and it's like, no, just call me Hispanic. You know, I'm like, well, okay. And with anyways, Hispanic for me, I don't, with Hispanic for me, it's that so much of my lived experience was, you know, with, with Hispanic, there is this really, really strong tie to Spain. And obviously a lot of us are descendants from Spain. I think I'm 50% descended from Spain, according to 23andMe. Um, and Ryan, I know you're, you're, you're Italian, right? Yeah, Puerto Rican and Italian. Yeah. I, got, I got 7% yeah. Italian, so I'm there with you too, Ryan, 7%. <laughs> um, there's 0.1% Ashkenazi, so it's not a lot, but... Hey, I'm 99% Ashkenazi. Wow, 99. <laughs> and 1% yeah. North African. Yup. Anyway, yep. yeah. go on. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, not at all. Not at all. Hispanic, I don't feel comfortable with it just because it centers Spain so much. And there was so much fuckery behind Spain's treatment of the rest of the Americas mm -hmm. that I do, I do acknowledge that I am a descendant of, of that group. And I, and I also acknowledge that as a descendant of that group and as a light-skinned Latino, I have to consistently engage in shadow work. I have to consistently think about the dark past of my ancestors as well and how that presents itself in me and how that affects my blind spots. So I, I just rather say Latine, Latinex, Latino. I use all three for, for myself uh, be, because it, it, it is including my Black grandmother and my Black grandfather in a way where they, I feel like they are more centered and my indigenous ancestors, who I, I don't feel like I got to know that well because I think they're further back. And the, the culture was sort of lost by then for me. But that's, that's my whole thing with all of those identities. And, and Ryan, you made a choice. You went Latine for, you know, for the lab. Yeah. So Actually, I have a specific story of why it was like there wasn't even a decision about which one to use for us, which was I was, uh, I, I, Spanish is not, I don't speak Spanish fluently. I've learned it like as an adult over the past eight years or so. So I still am learning. I'm still a student of Spanish. Uh, and so I have a tutor uh, in Peru that I, that I talked to this, this mom, she's, you know, pretty progressive. She's super, super cool. And as like a queer man, being able to talk to her about anything I want to is, is great. I don't feel like I have to censor myself at all, but I was dating someone non who was non-binary used they, them pronouns. And so we had a, a number of conversations talking about them first when they were just like, my friend was the word that we ended up using like, uh, amigo, amiga. Um, and then when they were actually like my person, so like what that would be novio, novia, boyfriend. And, um, mm -hmm. It was really easy for us to then just use the gender neutral, which would be amigue with it with the e, like Latine, amigue, no be. And so I'm a big fan of Latine because it actually 
creates a lot of facility to start to, to make that commonplace and how we also create neutral gender for other Spanish words that still keeps it in the vernacular of, of Spanish. From my understanding and also from my understanding of the folks that I speak to and, and, and my tutor, even, you know, this mom in Peru is like, mm -hmm. oh, I understand. That's your Noe. Great. Cool. I can completely converse with you in that now. And, and so that's why that's where I go to. But then I also just offer a lot of grace that like language for identity groups, like it is natural that it evolves over time. Um, mm -hmm. The language that gets co-opted by the group eventually also becomes the language of the oppressor. That's just like a natural way in which language evolves. So like as as to queer men, like we actually, I think I more often identify myself as queer, right? Like I would say like me and Robin are both queer men before I would identify us as gay men right now. Like, but that's different than mm -hmm. 10 years ago. Like that, that language just sort of naturally evolves because as as things become more mainstream, that language starts to get co-opted more by the language of the oppressor. And so we have to actually kind of continue to be on this journey of reinventing ourselves. And if you look at it across like any any group, that language has evolved over time. And so I think it's very natural for the language to evolve and a natural for there to be like a pushback or discomfort with it from older generations. That's just it's just normal with with sort of any sort of changes. It's just how we are as I think how we're wired as people. So I offer a lot of grace for the people that prefer Hispanic. I offer a lot of grace for that. Uh, no, nothing about those terms offends me. If someone referred to me as Hispanic, I'm not, I don't have any, I don't have any sort of feeling about it, but I do think it is just normal and natural to be moving towards Latine as, as the term for a lot of reasons. And also I think the thing, the thing that a lot of us have to remember too, when we have these conversations, because oftentimes they come up with, folks that are of Spanish-speaking descendancy, it's also about the awareness that you can be Latina and not come from a Spanish-speaking country. And because there's a, I'm from Connecticut, and there's a politician there who is Puerto Rican, and he wants Latinx removed from all government documents. And one of his arguments is, I'm a proud Hispanic, Spanish is my people's language, and you can't mess it up. And I just thought it was fascinating because Latino isn't just for Spanish speakers. Right. And so there, there is a self-centering that is excluding of others, whether that be native folks, whether that be Brazilians, mm -hmm. Guyanese, there, there's so many folks that are, that, are in, that are in the group that aren't getting enough attention. So again, Latina to me is just a sign that we're healing. Yeah, I like it. I, um, my minor was Latin American studies. And so I traveled a lot in Spain and I took a year and went all through South and Central America. And it was so interesting to go to all the different countries and understand what their, at that time, this was many years ago, but their sort of point of view, especially with regard to the relationship with Spain um, and Spanish. So especially yeah. in Brazil. Um, anyway, fascinating. Um, but I want to go back to, I want to go back to the lab for a second. Um, so can you tell me your vision for, well, actually, before we get in the vision, just what are some of the actual, you were talking about sort of what the writers need mm. and what they're asking for. Can you just give us an example of like a concrete thing that the writers need that you are now providing or can provide in the near future? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I think the, a great example is our most recent event. So we have uh, a set of what we call different flagship programs that provide different development and uh, performance opportunities. Uh, so everything we do is very focused on the development of musicals, providing a platform where we can connect with the, the writers, with actors, dramaturgs, facilitators, audiences, all depending on the project. And so 
uh, one of my favorite programs. It might be my favorite. I not to not to play you know Papa with the different favorites, but um, is our Julio de Burgos cohort, named after the late great Puerto Rican poet. And uh, the cohort is six teams of writers come together over a three-month span. They meet every other week. They've got uh, two facilitators that work with them. And so they're they're just given this space to incubate and collaborate over the course of three months to develop their show. And so we uh, had two cohorts go simultaneously during the fall. One was in person so that people could meet in person who were here in New York City. The other was virtual, and it was all femme, female, non-binary, or trans composers. So we were investing in the, the people writing the music because they're often the people that get left behind, especially for, for Latines. Uh, there's not a lot of well-resourced uh, and successful composers out there who are who are Latin. And so we had those two running simultaneously in the fall. Uh, and then these, this program, what's great about it is that it isn't just the three months. It also ends in what we call a capstone project where the writers have like some sort of next step effort for their work. And so for the composers group, the virtual composers group, they all are getting recordings of some of their music that they're going to have for submissions to be able to put on their website, right? We're showcasing the composers, the music writers. Uh, the other group got a concert uh, in partnership with Prospect Theater Company here in New York City. Uh, we had Ana Villafane and Joel Perez host this great, amazing concert that sold out at Chelsea Factory. And the six teams got to go up there and present two songs by bomb-ass singers and then also do an interview. Mm. So we really centered not just the material, but we're always trying to uplift and highlight the writers, right? We're, we're, we're creating fans of these writers because it's not just about the material. It's not just about this one show they're working on. We're really focused at the lab of what is the longevity of the career? How are we investing in the person and not just their 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 one idea or their one piece of writing, right? Not just their one work. And so it felt like it, it, it created this really amazing platform where the writers got to be seen in their full artistry to, to potential agents, to potential producers, to, to the community. And that just felt like such a great through line of, of investment, development, mentorship, collaboration, community, onto performance, onto videos that they get to keep, onto potential connections. And so that that example of, of how that program created all of these pathways all in one program, I think really encapsulates what we want the writer to experience to be here at the lab. I, I love the comprehensive approach. Um, Robin, if you had to think 10 years from now, and you think about the world of theater, particularly Broadway. What would it in your fantasy world, in your in your vision, like of, of like it being great or better? What would it look like ten years from now? And I'm you know, and, and taking into in consideration everything that Ryan just said too. <laughs> yeah, one hundred percent. I've been thinking a lot lately about Charles Blow, the political analyst, and mm. he's been talking about the he's been talking about how the, he wants the Great Migration to return to the South. And specifically for Black folks to return to the states that could turn purple and blue that are presently red, mm -hmm. uh, so that that way it's like instead of instead of a, a, uh, basically addressing white supremacy in a new way, overpowering it, but with by with politics. And in Puerto Rico, there's there's something similar happening in the sense that people are asking the diaspora to return, the mainlanders to come back. And in in thinking about that, one of the things that I hope to see in the future is more of a connection between commercial Broadway and the Puerto Rican traveling theater company and La Thea and all the theater and and um, trying to think who else right now. Um, there's so many. My brain is farting. Intertorio. <laughs> Thank you. I literally was like looking at Intar in my head on 52nd Street. I'm in the corner. 
and I can't and I can't say it. All, all of them, I would love for there to be more of an exchange with those with those theaters. Um, I think one of the things that I love about Latine Lab is that in cultivating all these writers, which I think is the most that's that's the place where we need to be focusing our energy most there and finding Latino producers. Um, because one of the things that I've noticed happen for a lot of POCs is they they write shows that don't center the POC experience because they're aware of the fact that that show is going to get more, is more likely to get produced than a show that does center. So the idea of having more and more Latinos helps us fill in those blind spots. You know, those, those, those moments where someone might say, Hey, I could write this show that is, that is about Latino family, but I really want to get it produced. So I'm just going to make it white. And, and so I, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah ahead, I, I know. I, I do. So when I worked back at the Broadway League, um, I ran the marketing there, and um, we did a bunch of marketing research for um, for Broadway in general about, well, everything really. But one of the things I was very focused on was, you know, creating a more diverse Broadway. And um, one of the questions that we asked um, specifically to Latine, Hispanic, Latino. Latin audience members yeah. um, was what's your favorite Broadway show ever? And when I saw the results, I just smiled because I totally got it. And I would ask this question to people. So I'm going to ask both of you, what do you think the re this research results were? Um, this is probably about mm, like at least 10, 15 years ago, 15. So it's before in the Heights. Let's go that way. Okay. 15 years ago. Um, what would you say was the favorite show of um latina audiences on broadway oh if i don't even want to say, I, my first thought was wicked but yeah i guess west side story okay most people okay what would you say ryan you told me this already i did tell <laughs> you okay so don't so i'm not gonna it's okay. yeah it's fiddler on the roof of course, yeah. It's kind of, of totally, it, it makes 100% sense, mm -hmm. right? So back to your, you know, what you were saying earlier, you know, if you're focusing a story about people, about family and tradition, you know, it doesn't matter right. who they are, it's like people will be able to relate to them, you know? A hundred percent, yes. Yeah. And, Sorry, I, and I, think, yeah. I think Fiddler's also really successful because it's really culturally specific. Right. Mm. It's it's yeah. it is specific. It's not trying to be general. It's not trying to be a show that is for everyone about a very specific group of people in a very specific experience. I think Fiddler has sustained power regardless of if you are of that community or not, because it's got that cultural specificity. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, OK, so back to the question. So 10 years from now, yes, Broadway looks like there's more integration between um, commercial theater and um, more integration with commercial theater with 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 not for profit theaters specifically the ones that center P the POC experience and I and I also really really hope that Broadway um, becomes a place becomes more accessible with some sort of government sub like subsidized ticket system you know which we already have but. I remember um, Jeremy from Slave Play, the, the playwright, with Jeremy O'Harris uh, put an article out early during the shutdown about how FDR recognized that Broadway wasn't, Broadway affected the local economy in such a way, but not just with the ticket price. It's all, and we know this, it's everything. It's, 
it's taxis, it's restaurants, it's, it's the merchandise, it's, it's so many things, right? So if the government would realize that, that if you just help us get people in the seats, that money will get spent in other ways. Mm-hmm. Overall, I, I'm, I'm hoping that there's more government involvement in subsidizing ticket prices for Broadway. So, Rob, and I want to I want to ask you, I'm going to ask you both, but you're a singer and an actor. You're both Hollywood and Broadway. And I just wondered, you know, you've done so much amazing work. What motivates you and what inspires you when you're, you know, sort of picking something to do um, and to work on and a character? I am pretty intuitive. I'll find myself listening to music or you know journaling something and all of a sudden I'll feel like oh who's that character and one time it came to me because I leaned over and I lifted my pants in a certain way and I thought who's that and then I sat with my hand on my on my pants for a second and I thought hmm I've never played a gangster before and I, I I'm a I'm a I'm five foot four so I'm, I'm a smaller dude and, and roles like that aren't usually presented to me but I, I, I meditated on that for a while I thought well who who is the person that presents in many ways like me and has, and of course, Joe Pesci comes to mind. Joe Pesci. Um, oh, there was, there was someone else as an actor from the 30s, 40s, and 50s that I can't think of right now. And I, and I sat with that, and, I, and another day I thought, I want to grow my hair out again. I want to start wearing more oranges and yellows. And, and I, didn't, I didn't know what this, was, what this was prepping me for, but I knew that I saw something and it was pixelating. And I said, I, I really want to play a gangster in a period piece somewhere between the 50s and the 70s. And I thought about this for about five months. And one day I got offered an audition for this TV show called Welcome to Chippendales on Hulu. Which, by the way, blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> cool word. Totally turns out that all of those things that I kept thinking about were, this, were prepping me for this person that actually existed. And so many of the downloads that I was getting it was him sort of calling me too. And so a, a lot of it is I, I'll sit down and think, well, what would I like to play? What goes against the last thing I did? What, what allows me to show range? And I just start abstractly developing characters. The other thing for me is I'm, I'm always aware that I identify as a healer. And so I want to choose stories that heal in some sort of way. And, and so that allows me to sift through, through certain things that don't really accomplish that. And when I say like work that heals, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything has to be noble and serious. Yeah, like Chip, there's, there's Chip, total... Chippendales was not so noble, but man, it was good. <laughs> I mean, at, at all. And also sometimes you just want to do like a dumb, silly comedy. That, that's also healing in, in, for people and, in, and also very, very important. So that's, that's usually how I, I uh, get myself going. But also... I have found that the moments where I have been stuck, the, the moments where I have been most blocked and struggling to get the kind of work that I want are the moments where I don't have anything brewing, are the moments where I just am not being intentional. And so I can't call in anything if I have nothing to say outwardly. So it, it's always being aware of, of what my wants and needs are and why I do what I do and and making sure that there's a goal so that I know what to work toward. Ryan, I'm going to ask you the same question, but before I do, I just have to plug Welcome to Chippendales because I stumbled upon it and I just, literally, my mind was blown. I didn't know the story. And I grew up in LA and I remember, Ooh. like, I, I went to Chippendales, like, and I never even 
I didn't know the, it's crazy. So anyone listening, go watch that. It's insane. It's and bonkers. It's bonkers. And your performance was, it, your, it was so good. <laughs> Thank you. And also Annalie Ashford oh. is, is, is fabulous in it for all the theater lovers. Yes. Yes, she is. Thank you for that plug. How about you, Ryan? Like what, what inspires you? What motivates you when you're like sort of picking a project? And I mean, obviously like the Latine, the lab is one thing, but like in your, in your other like acting work or directing work. Yeah. You know, I actually just a couple months ago really made the decision to step away from acting in any, any large capacity, uh, not because I don't love it. Like it, it's actually, that makes it even harder in some ways. I love performing. I've, I love actors. I love acting. Um, but because I felt so, uh, if you can't tell I'm like a really passionate person and like I'm super high energy. And so it's hard to not be able to give 110% to that part of my life. And I, and I have this, this calling really of the lab and, and, I felt like in the first year and a half I was running the organization, I was trying to be both things. And it felt like I was not being able to be full in both ways, you know? And so uh, I, I, I basically don't act anymore or I have, you know, manager and do some film and television when I can and things like that. But um, so I guess I can answer the question in terms of like how we pick projects at the lab, but it's actually very different in that, you know, last year we uh, aided in the development of 54 different shows. Uh, and that was only that was only our second year in existence as an organization. And so we work at a really massive scale. And a lot of that has to do with 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 two major things. One is we're really it goes back to investment of artists, right? We're really invested in growing a whole big class of artists, not just a select few. We're really interested in providing opportunities year after year to all different artists so that 10 years from now, we see this whole group of people that had a lot of opportunity to really grow into their artistry and to grow into themselves and to stay in the game of writing musicals and to and yeah. to have been, for the, for the lab to have been that incubator in many ways of the careers of all of these writers. Uh, but the second is it allows us to, uh, we, we, as artistic director, I have a set of artistic values that we program based on. It's not based on my artistic sensibilities, but I do have my sort of producer cap of what shows really hit for me and what shows I'm really excited about. And if and when I have the opportunity to step into more of a producing role um, in actually trying to get shows produced on uh, off-Broadway or on Broadway, that's a different conversation. But as the artistic director of the lab, my job is to uphold artistic values that are of service to the community. And so that's how we decide what shows we're picking in at any given time. But working at this high volume allows us to think really holistically about the Latin community, right? Like Latinidad is this giant umbrella and it's really difficult to, to, you know, describe it in a sentence because it encompasses so many different experiences. Being a Latin writer encompasses experiences that have so much to do with your culture and also sometimes very little do, do, to do with your culture. And so we really want to encourage and, and live out loud, not just in speech, but live out loud in how we program and how we select shows in a way that encourages this really expansive definition of Latinidad, this really expansive definition of what musical theater is and can be. And so we're often programming with that thought of like the, the bigger picture we're really trying to draw. Um, that also then allows us to give opportunity to brand new writers, well-established writers, out of the box ideas, very commercial ideas, all in one so that we can look back on the 54 shows that we did and, and look at the map and be like, yeah, this represents our community like as a whole and as a picture. And it also gets us out of this um, 
constant issue that I think we deal with as Latin people of like that one show, that one actor, that one experience has to somehow represent all of us because commercially in film and television on Broadway, we get so few that there's this like immense pressure that that one has to represent all of us. And that's not, it's impossible. Mm -hmm. It's an impossible feat. So what does it look like, you know, to have this map and to have the space and to have the expansiveness to say, this, this big map represents us. No one project has to carry that weight. God, you should do a TED Talk on that. That was great. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. um, speaking of TED Talks, so what advice would you guys give to our listeners? I like to use the word everyday philanthropist or everyday activist because I feel like that's what most people could be. Um, and I'm going to steal your, your phrase, but if people listening were thinking about renegotiating their contract mm. with their own activism, um, what advice would you give people? My first thing would say uh, would be what what are you good at and what brings you joy? I think sometimes people assume that activism, I don't know, they they get intimidated by it and they feel like they don't have the tools to to be normal, Ray, like I said earlier, or or they envision it a certain way and well that's that's not my skill set and I, and I think that there's something for everyone and it doesn't always have to mean that you have to start a latine lab like god bless you ryan for being <laughs> able to, to take because there are a lot of folks who won't take that on hmm. and i and i understand that as well it's a it's a lot to take on and so so a kudos to you but but also for others it's like it doesn't have to be that big so really think about what it is that you are already good at what it is that's built into your life and then make room to multiply that instead of trying to find this other thing. I hope that makes sense. It does. It does. What do you think, Rai? Yeah, I, I love that so much. And I think it plays into where my brain goes initially, which is, you know, there's a level of like diversification and there's a level of like specification. And so we all have different superpowers. We all have different uh, capacities, right? If you think of from a financial capacity, we all, anyone who's giving money and able to donate money has different levels of financial capacity. Those of us who are, are active in our actions, right? Those are not mutually exclusive either. But when you think about how you want to show up in the world, there's, there's the ability to either go really deep on one thing or to take your superpower and go like, and, and diversify how you're showing up. I think, um, there are a lot of organizations, and, I, and I'll say this as, an, as, a, as a young arts leader, having founded an organization, uh, the difference uh, a relatively small donation makes for our organization is huge. So mm. I would encourage folks that are, that are able to give uh, enough money that they can diversify where they give their money to really think about what are the organizations that, you know, a, a, a tenth of what I give this other organization could really make an impact on. But to not also feel like that's the only thing you can give to, right? That can be a portion of your financial giving. And, and then a portion mm -hmm. goes to a smaller organization like the lab or a smaller theater company where that that smaller donation can make such a huge impact. Um, I, I think if we think about how we di diversify, in, in this case, funding, but also think about how we diversify our energy. And are you the kind of person mm -hmm. that is like, like, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, where do you get energy from? Because it's great to be uh, to be self-sacrificial 
and to like give and pour from mm. a relatively empty cup, but you're going to do so much more service in the world if you're able to pour into something that pours back into you. So like my question for the people that are much more activists in action in the things they do mm. or the things they participate in or the boards they sit on or the places they volunteer is like, what really fills your cup? And if you're the kind of person that it fills your cup to be a super active board member for one organization and make a massive impact, do that. But also don't feel... Like that is what you're supposed to do. If you're actually more the person that's like, hey, I'm going to attend this events at these places. I'm going to volunteer at this shelter and I'm going to do this thing once you're here. Like anything you can do in terms of like the actual actions you take is massively useful. And it's way more useful if you're really honest with how your energy and how your temperament and how your passions align with those things. Because ultimately what we just want is more people giving to more things. And so if you think about like how the impact of your dollar really play, plays a factor into organizations and how it can really change the life of an organization. But you also think about if the goal in terms of what you do active, like activity-wise, how you take action, the more action mm -hmm. each of us can individually take, the more different places, the more ways different things can grow, if that makes sense. So there's some some strategic, it goes back to what you said like at the earlier the earlier in the conversation is like, like be a little selfish about how you like to give on what fills you up for giving. Because actually, if you can give 20% more in action or make 20 or 100% more in impact, that's then, then everybody wins. Definitely. So any final thoughts as we close out our conversation today? Um, I was even thinking, never asked this question either, but it just dawned on me when you were talking. Are there any song lyrics that like are quotable that or singable if you guys want to sing? Uh, any final sort of, ideas about giving back or changing the world for the better you know the, the 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 one of the things when i wake up i have i have a, you know certain routines and rituals and uh i switch out two different songs in my in my morning routine it's la vida es un carnaval la, la vida es un carnaval by celia cruz life is a uh -huh. carnival uh -huh. it's all about choosing joy and and it's a, a rinsing of of all negativity and then the other one is uh, Mark Anthony. A veces llega la lluvia para limpiar las heridas. A veces solo una gota puede... Oh my God, I forgot the words right there. But it's also about, it's a literal rinse of all negativity. And so that's what came to me when you said that. Vivir mi vida is the name of the Mark Anthony song, which means live your life. Live your life. Um, well, I have to plug an uh, original musical song because like, duh. Um, <laughs> so this song like holds a lot of, it, there's a song called Dreamer by Jaime Lozano. Uh, Mauricio Martinez sings it uh, in probably anything you'd find online. And it's from Mauricio's, uh, not first album, but first major album, which is Songs from an Immigrant. Uh, volume one. There's a volume two now, which <laughs> you should also listen to. But uh, <laughs> there's something about the chorus, you know, the lyric is like, like, Dreamer, there's a life you leave behind. You look, you step outside and looking for the answer. A home away from, I'm messing up the lyrics now, but like it's it's about like that dreamer that's left his country. And, and, and there's a part of it that feels like beautifully on the nose about the experience of immigration. But then the actual music itself is, is, is it encapsulates the, the literal word dreamer. It is passion. It is mm. energy. It is forward looking. It doesn't sit in the trauma of of what it is to be an immigrant in this country. It 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 holds space for the both. 
And I think that's why that song still makes me cry because it's and then there's a part where like it like kicks in and it switches to Spanish lyrics and like this like uh, beat underneath it. And when I first started the lab, I was like researching music from our writers and I would listen to it in the background while I was like sending emails or whatnot. And I couldn't listen to that song. I had to listen to that song maybe like 20 times before I could listen to it without crying. <laughs> like Because... Yeah. My, like our writer's music inspires me so much. It it, it reminds me of, of what it is we're doing here and, and it fills me with emotion. And that's just one that was one of the first ones to hit me in this deep way. And, and it's also just a fucking bop. So big, big thumbs up to Dreamer. And to Jaime Lozano, who, oh, he's just an amazing writer and he is the future. So you guys, thank you so much for being here today. The energy, the forward-looking, and most of all, the passion that both of you put into everything that you do. Um, we're so grateful that, you know, with all the, with everything you do to make our lives better and to make so many other people's lives better. Thank you for being here today on Broadway Gives Back. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Broadway Gives Back podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate Broadway Gives Back wherever you stream your podcasts. You can also follow me on Facebook at Jan Friedlander Weiss and on Instagram at Jan for Good. Broadway Gives Back is part of the Broadway Podcast Network, produced by Dory Berenstein, Alan Seals, Kimberly Garris, along with their team of amazing collaborators and wonderful humans. To learn more about this podcast and other Broadway podcasts, visit bpn.fm slash broadwaygivesback. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.